Chapter Thirty Two of the Sign of Silence by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Thirty Two is the conclusion. Do you really believe that man? asked Kane, turning to us quite coolly, a sarcastic smile upon his lips. He was a marvelous actor, for he now betrayed not the slightest confusion. He even laughed at the allegations made against him. His bold defiance utterly amazed us. Yet we knew now how resourceful and how utterly unscrupulous he was. Yes, I do, was the officer's reply. You murdered her highness, fearing that she should go to her father and expose you before you could have time to dispose of your stolen concession to him. Had she gone to him, the police would hunt you down as Sir Digby's assassin. But by closing her lips you hope to be able to sell back the concession and still preserve your guilty secret. Of course, remarked Fremy, the whole affair is now quite plain. Poor Miss Shand was drawn into the net in order to become this scoundrel's victim. He intended from the first to make use of her in some way and did so at last by making her believe she had killed her alleged rival in Mr. Royal's affection. Truly this man is a clever and unscrupulous scoundrel, for he succeeded in obtaining a quarter of a million francs from a reigning sovereign for a document to obtain which he had committed a foul and dastardly crime. "'A lie! Lies! All of it!' shouted the accused angrily, his face as white as paper. "'Oh, do not trouble,' laughed Fremy, speaking in French you will have an opportunity to make your defense before the judge, you and your ingenious accomplice, Mrs. Petrie. We want her in England for the attempted murder of Mr. Royal, Edwards remarked. I'll apply for her extradition tomorrow. Your chief will, no doubt, decide to keep Kane here, at least for the present. We shall want him for the murder of the Englishman, Sir Digby Kemsley. You may want me, laughed the culprit with an air of supreme defiance, but you'll never have me. Oh, no, no, I'll remain over here and leave you wanting me. Prisoner, what is the use of these denials and this defiance? asked Fremy severely in French, advancing towards him. You are in my custody, and under the law of the Kingdom of Belgium I arrest you for the murder of Sir Digby Kemsley in Peru, and for the murder of Stephanie, daughter of His Highness, the Grand Duke of Luxembourg. Then turning to his two subordinates, he added briefly, Put the handcuffs on him. He may give you trouble. "'Handcuffs! Ha, ha!' cried Sinos the Peruvian, laughing and snapping his brown fingers in the prisoner's face. "'It is my triumph now. Sinos has avenged the death of his poor good master.' "'A moment!' exclaimed the prisoner. "'I may at least be permitted to secure my papers before I leave here, and hand them over to you. They will perhaps interest you,' he said quite coolly. Then he took from his watch-chain a small key, and with it opened a little cupboard in the wall, from whence he took a small square deed-box of Japan tin, which he placed upon the table before us. With another and smaller key, and with a slight grin upon his face, he opened the lid, but a cry of dismay escaped us, for next second we saw that he held in his hand a small black object, sinuous and writhing, a small, thin, but highly venomous black snake. It was over in an instant, ere we could realize the truth. Upon his white wrist I saw a tiny bead of blood, where the reptile had struck and bitten him, and as he flung it back into the box and banged down the lid, he turned upon us in defiance and said, "'Now take me. I am ready,' he cried, uttering a peal of fiendish laughter. "'Carry me where you will, for in a few moments I shall be dead. Ah, yes, my good friends, I have played the great game and lost. Yet I've cheated you all, 
as I always declared that I would. The two men sprang forward to slip the metal jibes upon his wrist, but Fremy, noticing the instant change in the assassin's countenance, motioned them off. The culprit's face grew ashen gray. His thin jaws were fixed. He tried to utter some further words, but no sound came from him, only a low gurgle. We stood by and watched. He placed both his palms to his brow and stood for a few seconds in the center of the room. Then a paroxysm of pain seemed to double him completely up, and he fell to the carpet writhing in most fearful agony. It was horrible to witness, and Frida, with a cry, turned away. Then suddenly he lay stiff, and stretched his limbs to such an extent that we could hear the bones crack. His back became arched, and then he expired with horrible convulsions, which held his limbs stiffened and extended to their utmost limits, truly the most awful and agonizing of deaths, and a torture in the last moments that must have been excruciating, a punishment worse indeed than any that man made law might allow. As Herbert Cain paid the penalty of his crimes, the woman Petrie at last recovered consciousness. I saw the look of abject terror upon her face as her eyes fell upon the man lying dead upon the carpet before us. She realized the terrible truth at once, and giving vent to a loud hysterical scream, rose and threw herself on her knees beside the man whose wide-open eyes, staring into space, were fast glazing in death. Edwards bent and asked in a low voice whether I wished to give her into custody for the attempt upon me. But I replied in the negative. The assassin has received his just punishment and must answer to his maker, I replied. That is enough. This scene will assuredly be a lesson to her. She falsely accused Miss Shannon, remember, he said. She knew all the time that Cain struck the poor girl down. No, I replied. Now that the stigma has been removed from the one I love, I will be generous. I will prefer no charge against her. Ah, dearest, cried Frida, I am glad of that. Let us forgive and endeavor, if possible, to forget these dark black days and weeks when both our lives were blighted and the future seemed so hopeless and full of tragedy. Yes, I said, let us go forth and forget. And with a last glance at the dead man, with the woman with disheveled hair kneeling in despair at his side, I took the arm of my beloved and, kissing her before them all, led her out, away from the scene so full of bitterness and horror. To further prolong the relation of this tragic chapter of my life's history would serve no purpose. What more need I tell you than to say Mrs. Petrie disappeared entirely, apparently thankful to escape, and that at St. Mary Abbott's in Kensington a month ago Frida and I became man and wife, both Edwards and Fremy being present. As I pen these final lines I am sitting upon the balcony of the great Winter Palace Hotel in Luxor within sight of the colossal ruins of Karnak, for we are spending a delightful honeymoon in Upper Egypt, that region where the sun always shines and rain never falls. Frida, in her thin white cotton gown and white sun helmet, though it is January, is seated beside me, her little hand in mine. Below us in the great garden rise the high feathery palms above a riot of roses and poinsettias, magnolias, and other sweet-smelling flowers. It is the silent, breathless hour of the desert sunset. Before us, away beyond the little strip of vegetation watered by the broad, ever-flowing Nile, the clear, pale green sky is aflame with crimson, a sunset mystic and wonderful, such as one only sees in Egypt, that golden land of the long-forgotten. 
from somewhere behind comes up the long-drawn nasal sound of an arab boatman that quaint plaintive sing-song rhythm accompanied by a tom-tom which encourages the rowers to bend at their oars while away still further behind across the river lays the desolate ruins of the once powerful thebes and that weird arid wilderness which is so impressive the valley of the tombs of the kings frida has been reading what i have here written and as i kiss her sweet lips she looks lovingly into my eyes and says it is enough dearest say that you and i are happy ah so supremely happy at last in each other's love no pair in the whole world could trust each other as we have done i know that i was guilty of a very grave fault the fault of concealing my friendship with that man from you but i foolishly thought i was acting in your interest that being your friend he was mine also i never dreamed that such a refined face could hide so black and vile a heart but i have forgiven all darling i hasten to reassure her i know now what a clever and ingenious scoundrel that man was and how full of resource and amazing cunning you were his victim just as i was myself just as were the others no i add life love and happiness are before us so let us learn to forget and as our lips meet once again in a long fond passionate caress i lay down my pen in order to press her more closely to my breast she is mine my own beloved mine for now and evermore this is the end of the sign of silence by william lequeux recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com